You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Church in Huntsville, Ontario. Harvest Church is a community that exists to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at myharvestchurch.ca. Hey, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to John 11. We're going to be in the last part of John 11, the first part of John 12, as we continue in this series through this book of John together. It is time to start. Thank you. <laughs> the alarm has gone off. We can begin. <laughs> if you were with us last week, we were uh, just coming out of John, John 11 where Jesus shows up and raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, now, the question that would come out of a moment like that is, what do you do with that? When you come face to face with Jesus in that moment, that miracle, that transforming power of Christ, if, if you've experienced that, what's the proper response? Like when you see Jesus for who he really is, when you come face to face with the miracles of God, with the grace of God poured out on your life, what's the response? We're going to see here in the text this morning a a bunch of different ways that people responded to seeing this miraculous work of Christ. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had these two sisters, Mary and Martha. They send a message to Jesus saying, hey, Lazarus is sick and it looks like he's going to die. So Jesus shows up after Lazarus has died and he, he rolls into the funeral and he's like, yeah, not on my watch. Lazarus, come out, right? And, and he turns a funeral into a party where, where people see Lazarus, a dead man, come to life. How do they respond? If you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 45 of John 11. Verse 45 says this, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. They, they see this miracle of death to life, and they're like, man, this is for sure. Jesus is God the Son. He's the Messiah. I believe he is who he says he is. They believed. They, they didn't just hope that maybe They believe. Here's what it means when it says in Scripture to believe this. It means I'm putting my whole life on this. I'm resting everything on this truth. Uh, Another way that Scripture would describe it is you repent. Repent's a bit of a, a, a churchy word. Here's all it means. It means this. You're going in this direction saying, I'm doing my life in this way. This is how I'm doing things. This is what my life's all about. You see Jesus, the grace of God on display, death to life, and you repent. You turn and say, no, no, I'm going after Jesus now. I'm not going after that stuff anymore. That stuff isn't what my life's about. I'm following him. Some believed, it says. Now, there's another group here. They see the exact same thing, right? They've seen the exact same miracle. They have the exact same experience. They, They have all the same evidence. But look at what they do, verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So they, they, they see Lazarus. They're like, this is incredible that Jesus has power over life and death. I mean, this turns everything upside down. But rather than say, Jesus, I'm with you now, they run to go tell the religious leaders. They go tattle. These are your future hall monitors, your future Karens, all right? That, that's what these, right? They go to Jesus' enemies. They're like, hey, you got to know what's going on. Go verse 47. So the chief priests 
And the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. That They gathered this council. It's called the Sanhedrin. It was 72 men from the, from the leading wealthy religious families. And, and all of these guys in the Sanhedrin could trace their lineage back to the priestly line of Aaron. So they're, they're a pretty big deal. It was, it was the, the center of all the political and religious power in Israel. And they feel this pressure that Jesus is creating, right? People are following Jesus. What Jesus is teaching about God's grace is attracting support, his miracles, all of this challenging their authority in Israel. And and people are saying Jesus is the Messiah. And rather than throwing a party for this good news, they form a committee. Because Jesus doesn't fit their little religious ideas, but but there's more than that going on. Look at verse 48. You, You see the heart behind why they're so upset. Verse 48 says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You hear what they're concerned about? They, they, they see Jesus' miracles. They, they, they see what Christ is saying. And rather than engaging in that, rather than pursuing Christ, they want to preserve their own power. Well, people follow Jesus. They won't follow us anymore. It'll probably stir up the Romans and they'll, they'll come in. We got this little deal with them where, where hey, you guys leave us alone, but, but give us the power over our people and Listen, what we're driving towards in this text, we're going to see what is the proper way to respond to Jesus, but these guys show us the, one of the number one reasons why we never get to the proper way of responding to Christ, because we're grasping for control, because we so hold on to our little thing, our comfort. Man, I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to risk. What's really going on here, the proper response when you see Jesus is to worship him. These guys are still worshiping. They're just not worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping power. They're worshiping control. They're worshiping their comfort. Listen, the the enemy of God, Satan hates when we gather like this to worship. Why? Why? Because when we worship, we're saying to a watching world, Jesus, you're worthy of everything. You're worthy of my life. Nothing I have compares to you and your glory. Worship is just this. When you see something incredible and you respond to it, right? You, you, you give praise to its greatness. When you, when you go to the Grand Canyon, the, the response of, wow, that, that's, that's kind of worship. When, you, when you're watching a, a game and, and an amazing goal happens, you're like, wow, that's worship. You're, you're responding to an act of greatness. And, and what John's been doing all through his eyewitness account has been saying this, see who Jesus is. Because when you see who he is, you'll respond. And if you really see who Jesus is, you'll respond with this authentic worship of him. It's, it's not a forced worship. It's not coerced. It's not, man, you better come to church and you better sing. No, it's come and see. Come and see Jesus. See him for who he really is. I mean, I mean understand the grace of God poured out on us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says it this way. It says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed from one degree of, <clears throat> from one degree of glory to another. It's saying that here's how you change as those following Jesus. You, you don't change because of, of resolve and just grit your teeth and pull up your socks and you power through it. No, no. How do we do it? We change by beholding the glory of God. 
Because when we, when we sin, it's not as though worship has stopped. It's just changed direction. Worship's still happening. It's always happening. We never stop worshiping. As creatures, we were created to worship. Listen, listen. It's just where do you aim your worship? We sin by aiming our worship at the wrong things. We're aiming our worship towards money and sex and power and popularity and, and control and comfort. So what's our answer for, for that, going after those things? It, it's been said this way before. We worshiped our way into sin, so we need to worship our way out of it. These guys behold the glory of God in Jesus, but rather than aiming their worship towards him, instead they keep worshiping their own thing. And you, you see it in their, in their fear, in their anxiety, in the anger that they have. I mean, all, listen, if, if you're experiencing emotions like that, those should be like red lights on your dashboard. It's, it's like, oh, something's off right now. There's, there's a warning sign that, that our, our little idols of worship are being attacked. They're, they're being knocked over. And, and so, so you either protect those idols you have. Man, I gotta protect my money. I, I gotta protect this relationship. I gotta, I gotta protect my comfort. I, I gotta protect this sin that I've got, the thing I'm holding on to. Or, or listen, or you redirect your worship. If money's your idol, you'll protect it by, by cheating to get ahead, by, by sacrificing your family to make the next deal. If, if, if romance is your idol, you'll, you'll jump into any relationship that shows up. If, if, if success and fame are your idols, you'll, you'll work to burn out and live to burn out. If, if acceptance is your idol, I mean, you'll compromise. It's worship. We need to redirect our worship. Thomas Chalmers, a Puritan, he said it this way. We need the, the expulsive power of a new affection. Expulsive, it's a weird word. We don't use that word very much anymore. It means this. It means it's something that comes in and knocks something else out. So on the throne of our heart, we need the expulsive power of a new affection, a greater love. And we're going to see it. We're coming to it. In chapter 12, you're going to see people who see their hope, their joy, their love, their treasure found in Jesus, and they respond in worship to him. Before we get there, we've got to go through this guy called Caiaphas, the high priest. Look at verse 49. It says this, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He's saying this, he's saying a political statement. It's better that, that we just let, take Jesus out. It's, be, it's better that we, we kill Jesus so we don't lose everything we've got. So the Romans don't come in and take away our power. But look at the next verse. This is amazing. Look at verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not only for the nation not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He's saying something so political, so selfish, yet he has no idea that he's saying something that has so much of a, a deeper theological truth that Jesus is going to die for the many. That it is going to be Jesus' life instead of ours. That Jesus had come to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. The life we would need to live to be in a relationship with a holy God. And Jesus said, I'll live that life for you. 
And then because of our sin, the wages of sin is death, that, that we deserve death. We deserve to be separated from God forever and eternity in hell. And Jesus, listen, I'll pay that price. I will die in your place. Dies the death we deserve. He raises again to conquer sin and death. He takes our place. It says here, so that all of us, not, not just the nation of Israel, that's, everything's been leading up to that. All through the Old Testament, you see this picture of God's promises to his, to his chosen people, but he's always been saying, it's not just for you. It's so the whole world will be blessed. And so what's he doing? He's saying he's gathering into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Who's that? That's us. That's us here in Muskoka. The whole world hearing the gospel, bringing together one nation, Jews and Gentiles, grafted together into one nation, one family of God. That's what he's up to. That's been his promise since the beginning. We're now living in the fulfillment of that promise, which should lead us to worship. These guys still grasping for worship of self, self, worship of power. What's it lead them to? Look at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What a response. Like, like who would look at Jesus, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, and instead of responding in worship would say, ah, no way, man, you're not taking what's mine. Who would do that? Look to the person on your left, to the person on your right. Look to the person standing up here. That, that's what we do. That's the ongoing battle of our hearts where I don't want to lay down my wants. I don't want to lay down my desires. I don't want to give up my agenda. I don't want to give up my stuff. I don't want to let go of these idols. I don't want to surrender it to the Lordship of Christ. And, and so we can say with our lips, I worship Jesus. I love him until we disagree with him on something that he says, no, 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 this is my word. I, I, this is what righteousness looks like. This is what holiness looks like. This is what truth looks like. This is, this is what it looks like to sacrifice. This is what it looks like to show grace and love and to forgive. This is what money and sex and marriage and gender are all about. And we say, mm. Jesus, Jesus, I'll, I'll follow you, but you can't have this stuff. And, and we can be so hard on the Pharisees and forget that each one of us has this little Pharisee living in us is Jesus Lord of your life? Because if he is, we bring him everything. We lay, out, we, we, we lay down our pain, our problems, our anxieties, our fears, our condemnation. We, we, we give him our hopes and our dreams. We, we wave the white flag of surrender over our little kingdom. We say, Jesus, it's all yours. And, and, and then in this exchange, when we say, Jesus, I'm giving you all of this, all of my hopes and dreams, all of my sin and my shame, we have this exchange happen in that moment of repentance. And, and what do we receive? We receive abundant life, something greater than we could ever imagine or create on our own. These guys, though, fearing to give up those little kingdoms, they plot to kill Jesus. Let's look at verse 50, 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. So Jesus, he's laying low for a little bit, right? Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? 
that he'll, he'll come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. So, so the Passover is coming. This is the third time in John's account we, we hear of the Passover in Jesus' ministry. It's why we would be able to say that Jesus' ministry was three years long about, because there's three times you see the Passover coming, this yearly festival of the, of the Jewish people. This verse here is this turning point in the book of John. Three years leading up to this point, the rest of the book now is just one week all leading to the cross. And the religious officials, they're, they're thinking, man, with this festival coming, for sure Jesus will show up here. He's been here before. But here's something we, we need to get as we're looking at this, something so much more important about this. Listen, Jesus is, is, is completely in control of this schedule. He's the one turning the wheels of history. Jesus was going to be crucified at the Passover. And so he's like, yeah, my time's not come yet. Y'all aren't going to get me now. A Passover, why, why is this a big deal? A big deal in, in Jewish history and in faith, a big deal because they're celebrating that moment when they used to be slaves in Egypt and God came in power and rescues them, sends Moses to this guy, Pharaoh, who's enslaved them. And Moses, with those famous words, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, not a chance. I'm not losing my whole workforce that I've got here. So what does God do? God sends these plagues on Egypt. Each one of the plagues, this, this picture of God's power over the little tiny Egyptian gods, their little idols. He's like, no, no, no. God's saying, I alone rule the sun. I rule the Nile. I rule livestock and crops. But the final plague, the last plague that finally crushes Pharaoh to let God's people go is when God said this, every firstborn in all of Egypt is gonna die tonight. But then he gives a way of freedom from this judgment. He says this, he says, the, the homes that, that kill a lamb and sprinkle its blood on the doorpost, so, so that lamb to die in place of the firstborn, if, if, if that lamb dies, then the angel of death that comes will pass over, there's the name of the celebration, that angel of death will pass over those homes and the firstborn lives. And so when Jesus shows up at the very beginning of, of John's book here, remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb of the Passover, the lamb of sacrifice. What Jesus, we're gonna see when he celebrates the Passover with his disciples coming up in this last week of his, his time in ministry, he's, he's about to say, hey, this whole celebration, it's all been about me. I'm the lamb given, my body given for you, my blood poured out for you. And he takes this Passover celebration, turns it into what we celebrate now as communion. We're gonna do it this morning where we now celebrate that same act in Egypt. Now we see the significance for us that we've been set free. That there has been a lamb who's died, his body given for us, his blood poured out for us. All right, let's keep reading. Verse one of chapter 12. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. There's a guy who was raised from the dead, remember? Whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of the ones reclining with him at table. So Jesus shows up in Bethany again, right? And they're throwing this huge party for him. Listen, we're now seeing the proper response to Jesus. We celebrate. We worship. 
Now, we know from Mark's account and Matthew's account of Jesus' life that this dinner is actually being held at a guy's house called Simon the Leper. Bit of an unfortunate name, all right? Not getting a lot of dates with that name. Hey, I'm Simon, Simon the Leper. Mm, right on. In first century Israel, leprosy was a horrible disease. It was deadly, considered highly contagious. If you were a leper, you were an outcast in society. You had no part in community, no, no, no part in religious life, no part even in family life. People would walk on the other side of the street when they saw you coming. People would yell out when you were coming near, you're unclean. You would have to then say as you came near, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. No one loved the leper. But here, Jesus having a party with Simon at his house. Obviously, a leper healed by Jesus. Everyone gathering with Simon. Listen, Jesus gets so close to, to touch, to heal, to restore. And now he's celebrating and hanging out with the guy who used to be a leper. All through scripture, leprosy is this symbol of sin. That, that we would recognize ourselves in Simon, that, that before Jesus, if, if you've given your life to Christ, before that moment, you were a leper. You were falling apart. You were cut off from God for eternity. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, as you put your hope in that, you're given this chance to repent, to call out, and Jesus heals. He restores. And I love it. Jesus didn't just yell across the street at lepers, hey, you're healed. Stay over there, though. He got close, he touched them, he restored them. He's now celebrating with him. I mean, what a savior. Every one of us in this room, we're hopeless before God reached down into humanity through Jesus Christ. And listen, if you've given your life to Christ, that he would heal you and bring you into his family. The proper response then is this all-in worship. Why? Because you come to realize the, the full extent of who you were before Christ and that you've now been healed. Simon the leper responds by throwing a party. The official said, if you see Jesus, turn him in. He's like, no, forget that. I'm throwing him a party. And he invites Lazarus, the, the guy who was dead and now alive. I'm, I'm picturing Simon firing a text off to Lazarus saying, hey man, you free on Friday night? And Lazarus is like, dude, I was dead. My schedule's wide open, right? Listen, this party should be a picture of the church we are all a bunch of Simons and a bunch of Lazaruses. We were sick and cut off, but Jesus brought us near and called us family. We were dead in sin, but Jesus made us alive. We were blind, but now we see. We were lost, but now we're found. We were black-hearted, wicked sinners, now saved by grace. So we don't just show up here on a Sunday morning to kind of sing some songs and hear a guy yell from the front. No, we come every Sunday to pour out our hearts in extravagant worship to the one who's poured out his life love lavishly on us. So there's this party, this party going on. And, and, and what do we see? Look at verse three. There's verse two. So this dinner party, Martha served, Lazarus reclining. So you, you got Martha serving, Lazarus just enjoying his time being with Jesus. Just, he says reclining at the table. Martha serving, I can imagine she's like, Lazarus, come on, get up, man, help me with this. Hey, I was dead. I'm going to hang out with Jesus right now. But, but here's what you're seeing. All of them, this, this picture of worship. Martha serving. Lazarus just abiding with Jesus. And then there's Mary. Look at verse three. Mary. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
Mary takes this perfume. It's called nard. Horrible name. If I'm a marketer, I'm not choosing that name for a nice perfume. Nard, right? But anyway, takes this nard. And then it's this, this ointment that was made from this plant that only grew in the Himalayas. So now you can imagine how expensive that would be. That you'd have to travel all the way there to get this plant, to create this perfume. Crazy expensive. In fact, we find in the next verses that it was worth 300 denarii. Is anybody up to speed on the denarii to Canadian dollar exchange? Anybody know what that is today? Uh, yeah, me neither. Listen, if you have a study Bible, there's a little note probably, right, with some, some text at the bottom. Anybody got one of those? What's it say a denarii is worth? Help me out. I forgot to study this. There you go, a year's salary. 300 denarii would be a year's salary. One denarii is a day's wage. So think 300 days. If you were to work 50 weeks a year, so you got two weeks vacation, that's 250 days. So, so it's actually over a year's wages. Now, now think about that, what that is for you. Across this room, that, that number might be different. For some of you, it's a bigger number than for others. This is a crazy, all-in, extravagant display of worship by Mary. It's just this reckless, full of gratitude act of worship. She wasn't doing this. She's not opening up Bernard going, okay, let me, what's 10% of this? I'll just skim that off and give Jesus 10%. That's a good tithe. She didn't just open up and go, how about I just waft it on you, Jesus? There you go, and I get to keep it. No, she pours it all out. She gave sacrificially. Those around her would have been saying, Mary, what are you doing? Listen, have you worshiped like that before? Or maybe somebody near you would be like, wow, you're like all in. When was the last time you gave like this? Listen, we don't give money to church to just support ministries. That, that, that's great that that happens, but that's the outflow of why we actually give. It starts as an act of worship. It's us saying, Jesus, you're worth more than my money. You're worth more than my time. You're worth more than my whole life. Here in John, it's a dinner, but man, this is a worship service happening. Martha, worshiping by serving. Listen, when you serve, that's worship. Those who are cleaning this building during the week, it's worship. Those who are teaching right now up in Harvest Kids, it's, it's an act of worship. Those who serve with our youth, it's worship. Those who greet at the door are doing it because of worship. They're like, man, I get to be greeted by Jesus, so I'm going to greet others in the same way. When you, when you serve your family, it's worship. Students, when you serve at home, chores aren't just chores. That, it can be worship. I'm doing this for Jesus. When you serve out in our community, it should be this outflow of a heart of worship. We got Lazarus here. He's worshiping too. He's like, I just want to be with Jesus. This is like when you get up in the morning and, and you grab your Bible and you spend some time before the day begins because you just want to be with the Lord. Where you say, hey, iPhone, I know you want me to worship you right away. I'm not doing it. I have something so much better. I've got God's word. I can hear from him this morning. I can spend time in communion with God and, and lean into him. It's worship. Just this last week, I was sitting on my couch and one of my daughters was on her way through the living room to the kitchen. She sees me on the couch. She makes stops, makes a beeline to me, gives me a hug and just sits down beside me. That'll fuel me for a long time right there, right? Here's the thing. If, if, If my daughter can move my sinful heart in that way, how much more does our heavenly father's heart respond when we lean into him? And then there's Mary. 
undoes her hair, not something you do in front of people as a woman in first century Israel. She's like, I don't care. I'm not even gonna take the time to get a cloth to wipe his feet. I'm just gonna use my hair because I love him. She pours out this unbelievably expensive perfume. This is likely her dowry or, or maybe it's her retirement plan. That's what this is. And she's like, no, no, Jesus, you're worthy. She, she wipes his feet, this act of unbelievable humility. Only the lowest of servants would wash somebody's feet. And she's like, no, that's me. Jesus, you're worthy. She doesn't care what people think around her. She wants Jesus to know, Jesus, I treasure you above all of this. Any treasure I have on this planet is so small compared to you. Now, here's the danger of gathering to worship at our church here. It's a great church to be a part of. I mean, your kids will grow and harvest kids. Your students will love harvest youth. The worship teams here, I mean, crazy talented, Right? Life groups are so good to be a part of, but what can happen is we can roll in and just casually consume all the good stuff being offered. It'd be a bit like this. Imagine being at this party with Jesus and and all of this happening. Mary's pouring out this ointment. Lazarus is just so enamored with being with Jesus and you're crushing some flatbread. Going, this is really good. Is this gluten-free? This is so good. It's so, Lazarus, have you had this? It's super soft. And like, how crazy would that be? The meal probably was good. Jesus is better. So, so when we gather here, listen, are you worshiping Jesus? Are you overwhelmed by the grace of God? So that it leads to worship. I'm convinced that where there's a lack of worship in a church, where, where people are just going through the motions, where, where, where there's a lack of serving or, or sharing about Christ in our community, where there's a lack of giving, where, where there's a, a lack of this, this is all in worship on a Sunday. It's a sign of people who have lost sight of who they were before Christ, who God is and what he has done. I mean, you, you show me a church full of religious people just going through the motions I'll show you people who have forgotten how desperate and sinful and fallen and broken they were before Christ. Before his grace reached down and saved them. People who have forgotten they were dead and brought back to life. Listen, Lazarus was dead. Simon was an outcast. If your worship feels lacking, if your voice is quiet when it comes to sharing about Jesus, maybe the best thing is not to, to figure out how righteous and holy you are, but to see how desperately you need God's grace and his forgiveness because a, a church that is full of worship is a church that understands, sees a deeper view of the grace of God. It grows this deep love for Jesus, which spills out in worship and then outward even more in this love for others. That love for Christ that leads to worship, leads us to serve, to give, to share the gospel, to love the hurting, to pray, to get into the word, to sing our faces off. Why? Because we treasure Jesus above all else. We know we've been rescued from hell, saved from sin. Our our past condemnation and shame has been fully taken care of and we see it turned into freedom and life. Our response is worship. Now, in the middle of this amazing worship service, somebody has to speak up and say, wait a minute, this seems a bit over the top what Mary's doing. Judas, super offended by Mary's all-in worship, says, hey, calm down a bit, Mary. He he actually calls what she does, he calls it a total waste. Look at verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, 
he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, here's the thing, right, ready? This is, most churches would make Judas their deacon of finance, right? Like, I think he's right. That would have been better. Why, why are we spending money? We should, right? Now, now, does Jesus call us to take care of the poor? For sure he does. But listen, that should be an outflow of our worship, our love for him. The, our worship will fuel these acts of service. So we gather here, we reorient our hearts, our worship changes directions off of ourselves onto Jesus, and, and it's fueling our love for Jesus, our understanding of his grace. And listen, we go out of here smelling of the perfume of worship. You gotta think when she poured out that nard, it would have just covered the place, right? The, the, the aroma would have been everywhere. And so as they spread out from there, that aroma goes with them. But here's the thing, Judas, using such spiritual-sounding language, he's actually hiding this heart of his that's actually self-focused. Look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used, to use, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas robbing Jesus. Judas was a consumer. I read through this and I'm like, Lord, am I that way too? Has my heart been so enamored by God's grace that, that the things of this world no longer have a grip on me that I would give cheerfully, abundantly? Or like Judas, do I, do I wrestle with my consumer heart? Look, Judas looking for what he could get. Mary, not a consumer, she's a worshiper, looking for what she could give. Augustine said it this way. He said, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true and sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasures, the expulsive power of a new affection. Because I used to have these things I loved and I clung to so much, but Jesus, you came in and drove them all away and I've got a greater joy. I used to be worried about what it would cost me to follow Jesus. Now, I don't see any of that as a loss compared to what I gain. I get Jesus. As Paul would say in Philippians 3, I count it all as loss. It's all rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may gain Christ. So Jesus says to Judas in verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you'll always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus now pointing to his death. He's saying there's something greater she's doing that you guys don't even get. I'm going to die for you. Verse nine. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So here's how we're gonna respond this morning. We're gonna put our attention on Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, all of this pointing towards the cross. So I'm gonna have the ushers come forward as they hand out communion. And you'll notice that they hand it out, there's gonna be two cups stacked together. Grab both cups, the bread's in the bottom cup. As I hand this out, listen, if, if you know Christ, this is a way for you to worship. If you don't know Christ, this isn't for you. There's no worship happening. It's, it's, it's juice and a cracker, but, but, but if you know Christ, this is a time of worship. So if you don't know Jesus, let it pass. But if you don't know Christ this morning, this could be a celebration for you. Even in this moment where you would say, I want that. 
I want to give my life. I want to trust in him. I want to pursue him. And then, then in that case, grab the communion. Celebrate with us. Listen, as you hold the cup and the bread, the cup that is a picture of his blood poured out for us, the bread, a picture of his body given for us, let it stir your heart to worship. Worship like we see here in this text. Maybe for you, it's stirring you to be, to, to, to let that Martha grow in you. Where do I need to serve? Maybe for you, it's, it's that what Lazarus is doing. You're like, man, I, I need to lean in to Jesus, to, to know him more, to, to seek him more, to see him more. Maybe for you, it's Mary. She pours out her heart in gratitude. As you hold the elements, we're gonna take them together. But until we do, take the time right now, just the quiet of your heart where you are right now and consider God's grace. Consider what is it to bring everything, all my hopes, all my fears, all my dreams, all my desires, bring all my sin. Maybe for you this morning as you hold that, there's, there's this sin in your heart right now. And you know you're going to it all the time. It's the, the idol you worship. And this morning you say, I want to lay this down at your feet, Jesus. You're worthy. That you bring your condemnation and your doubts and your shame and say, thank you, Jesus, you've taken all of this. That you bring it to his feet. You'd heap it on his feet. So take the time even now. Time with you and Jesus. Jesus, we come to you this morning. Um, God, <clears throat> asking that our eyes would be open to see that we are Simon the leper. We are Lazarus who was dead. But through your body given, your blood, your blood poured out, that we've now been made alive. God, may that stir our hearts to leave behind sin. To bring that to you even this morning and say, God, take this. Thank you for your forgiveness over these things that I've been pursuing. God, I pray it would stir our hearts like Mary to worship you with an all-in, extravagant, over-the-top, reckless love because of your love poured out to us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It says on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body given for you. Let's eat together.
It says in the same way he took the cup. He says, this is, this is the cup, the, the blood of the new covenant that poured out for you that you could celebrate new life in Christ. Let's drink together. Would you stand with me? We're gonna respond to the grace of God shown to us in Christ through, through his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. We're gonna respond in worship. We're gonna respond by singing. We're gonna respond like Mary. All in, hearts engaged, hands raised. Now, you're like, do I have to raise my hands in worship? No, you don't. Why would you raise your hands in worship? Well, God calls us to do it, um, for one. But here's, here's the picture that, that hands raised. Now, listen, I grew up in a super conservative church, right? So for me, I'm like, mm, weird. I'm not doing that, all right? All right? Amen not to do it? Oh, okay, you too. All right. And, and here's what it is. You know what, you know what struck me? I'm like, man, I'm, I'm, like, I'm still in junior high. No offense if you're in junior high. But in junior high, you're always like, oh, man, what will people think? How am I still like that as an adult? If Jesus changed me, praise the Lord. For those of you who have kids, remember when your kids were little and you would come into the room, what would they do? Right? That's hands raised. Why? Why? Because of love. Because this desperate desire. God, I want to be in your presence. I want to be in your arms. It's, it's this posture of love, posture of desperation. It's a posture like Mary saying, I don't care what people think. My life has been transformed. Jesus is my treasure now. I want to worship him. So let's sing. Let, let's sing like saved people, all right? Let, let's sing like people who were lost and now found. Let, let's sing like those who were dead and brought to life by the grace of God. Let's pour out our worship on him because he is worthy of it all. Amen? Amen. Let's sing. Let's sing.